Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Before Stephen speaks, I just want to introduce him, say a few words. Um, as I said, he's he's really the um, uh, the founder and the the father of uh, the uh, insight meditation community, Dharma community in Israel, which has been thriving for um, oh close to thirty years now. Um, and I taught there this uh, last summer, and um, I first taught there at Stephen's invitation uh, over twenty years ago, about. 23 years ago, 24 years ago or so. Um, and it's really amazing just to see how vibrant uh, that community is. Uh, the They have one full-time paid uh, staff member, um, and uh, they put on 40 retreats a year of varying lengths, uh, they put on, including different public talks and classes and events. Um, I remember hearing 300 different events around the around the country in the various communities. Their uh, retreats are done completely on Donna, both as far as people's payment and also people's service. The the staff and the teachers, the managers, all on Donna, and they're filled, uh, usually with waiting lists. Um, so um, uh, it, he really planted some powerful seeds in this uh, fertile ground, people so hungry for uh, the Dharma and the truth. Um, and um, he's been practicing for... Uh, 40 years now, over 40 years, and um, brings a real depth of practice and also a, a real heartfulness to uh, to practice. And he has this new book, uh, which is really great, called What's Beyond Mindfulness, that has brought him uh, to the States and uh, visiting various communities. So it's a real pleasure to have you here, Stephen. Thank you very much, James. And I should say that uh, our connection, uh, James and myself, goes back a very long way. And uh, James actually visited and taught in Israel uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, It's really exciting to be part of such a big Dharma community uh, in such a part of the world, and maybe because of the pressure and the dukkha, the, the pain that is felt by people at all ages in Israel, then the hunger for uh, Dharma is, is very strong there. And it's real uh, Dharma in the sense that um, there isn't that much interest in uh, Buddhism in, more in the formal religious sense. And uh, I think everyone feels that as in Israel there's like three great religions that are constantly squabbling with each other, and nobody wants a fourth one. <laughs> so, uh, it, but, it, but it's a beautiful 
a thriving community uh, which is extremely rich with activity and so on. So when I I wrote the book recently, um, and it's a book that I think represents, in a way, the state of the Dharma in the Western world today, which is different from when we started, James and myself, 40, 50 years ago. When now the Dharma is arriving in its richness in the street in Berkeley in Tel Aviv. And it's not just mindfulness anymore. It's really exploring the way a deeper sense of awakening can change people's lives at all levels. And so when I wrote the book, it really, the book in Hebrew is entitled, um, uh, Daily Life Awakening. And it's really about how an awakened view, an attitude, as the Buddha said, bend your mind to liberation. And if we keep bending our mind to liberation, so how do we get up in the morning? And, and what is our life like? And how do we deal with disease? And how we deal with conflict? And how we deal with, with money? And how we deal with, um, stress and with, uh, uh, and with, uh, meaninglessness? And um, the, I, I was devastated when my book became the number one bestseller in Israel and stayed there 18 weeks, uh, which is extraordinary because it, it's not a simple book. It's not the beginning stage A, B, C, how to do mindfulness. It really goes into all the way into awakening from sta- stage by stage and all the way into what is life like from an awakened point of view. How do we look at life from an awakened point of view? So that's the book, and you're welcome to have a copy at the end. Um, and I've also opened some online courses just now, which are deep dharma, because I think, again, we're in a mature, a more mature stage in the dharma in the Western world. And in Israel, I think it really represents that. So tonight's topic, I chose a topic which um, actually is the topic that uh, that we're going to be doing at Spirit Rock um, together, uh, Donald and myself, but tonight is a sort of taster. And I chose a topic of um, conflict because it really is uh, a way in which you can, re- you can really see the way Dharma and a different view of reality can come to bear to in the most difficult places in our life. And certainly, you know, we have... And, and a track record in the Middle East is a total failure in dealing with conflict, <laughs> complete disaster. No, you know, hundred years of conflict, and no professors, and no politicians, and no thinkers, and no poets, and no artists, and no wise folk have, can solve that problem. And it's still the same now as it was hundred years ago. So clearly, you know, we, you need another approach, and there, I think, is the offering of Dharma. You need another approach, another way of looking at reality, and I see that that uh, that's the um, the gift of the Dharma is another way of looking at reality. So, just before I start on the subject, I thought to give a taster uh, from the book, just reading a little paragraph that gives you a flavour of, of of also my approach, and it's a kind of one paragraph that I think summarises the the Dharma in in one paragraph, and it's got a little. Uh, hint uh, about where I live, which is in the uh, ecological uh, um, 
off-grid uh, uh, village in the Galilee. Um, I live alongside lots of olive trees, which have an amazingly expressive character that clearly shows everything that has happened to them. If a branch has been cut, or if the tree reaches out in a certain direction, or lumps are formed on the trunk, or dry weather makes the leaves fall, you can see it. The shaping of the tree is its memory, its sankara, a response to conditions. And the tree doesn't have a problem with that. And there is no reason why we should have a problem either. We are also just shaped, constructed by life. We are given a body, and it develops and changes dynamically according to conditions. And we arrive in each moment as we are. And the world arises and meets us as it is. And all we need to do is to appreciate it and let it be. Stories are just stories. Narratives are just narratives. And embodiment is just embodiment. If we let go into this flow of life, the wounds will dissolve, the scars will be softened and brought back to life, and we will find ourselves in the garden of the now instead of the prison of yesterdays. A difficult experience can come up, just like an unpleasant visitor arriving in our house. We can cry, and the next minute we can laugh, and then he's gone. So I'd like to focus uh, now on the subject of the evening, which is conflict. And um, obviously, in age of Trump, Brexit, etc., uh, it's not just us in Israel, and it's not just groups. Conflict is actually universal. Who here will not have had conflict of some kind in the last few days at home, with family, at work, arguments with somebody in the street. Um, it's, it's, it's universal, and it's in nature as well. It's not just humans that are kind of often bitching at each other. I, I've got chickens. I keep you know, chickens at home, and I was shocked recently that the young males, there were two young males, and they killed their own father. The elderly cock was just sort of elderly. And I thought, you know, nature is not pleasant either. <laughs> you can't say nature is ideal. It's, it, there's suffering there and there's suffering. We're, just, we, we, we're also part of that. So um, conflict is universal and we do need to face it. And it's despite often our best intentions that we all want peace and we all hunger for peace. But it seems sometimes unavoidable, uh, like I say, in the Middle East. And, uh, you know, right in the heart of people wanting peace, you often find conflict and you'd be amazed. And I've, I've really experienced this. Peace organizations go to the board meetings. <laughs> go and sit in the board meetings and listen to disputes, disputes about the way to make peace. You know, everyone fighting with their own views about the way to make peace. 
It, it, it's very, uh, it, it despite our intentions, and it can leave us um, helpless. And, and we need to kind of see that there is no uh, clear rational answer to conflict. We can't just sort out conflict. There's an old Jewish story about um, uh, some young students went to a rabbi and said, Rabbi, Rabbi, tell, tell us, how do you solve conflict? So the rabbi said, well, there's an ordinary way and there's a magical way. And so the student said, oh, uh, so the ordinary way is where people sit down and listen to each other and try and work it out. And the rabbi said, no, no, that's the magical way. <laughs> um, and if we are in the Dharma, we are Buddhist practitioners, we sit on the cushion in the morning, and then we get up and we have conflict in the day, um, it's so easy to feel the Dharma has failed me. Why am I not peaceful? Why is this happening? That there's something not working in the Dharma, or I'm, it's not that meditation doesn't work so well, or I failed in some way. And it's a big test. And I think that the first message I want to give is, um, is to look again at the sources of conflict, to understand the sources of conflict, and realize how pervasive and deep they are. Even the Buddha couldn't solve conflict all the time. His, his own monks, uh, the Kosambi monks were fighting each other, and he couldn't stop it. At some point, he, he, I, he said, I give up, I go to the forest. I, I can't deal with you guys. His own monks. And he couldn't stop the conflict. And he went to the forest, and there he met an elephant. who was by him. The elephant was by, by himself. And, and the Buddha said to the elephant, I see you've run away from your group as well, <laughs> for the same reason. <laughs> Um, the un- we have to understand that the source of conflict is very primal, biological. It's based on the survival mind. It's based on fundamental fear and anxiety for existence. And it may be sourced in protection for the body. Fear, primal fear is to protect my body. But in the end, the self... The me, it spends all its time protecting itself, not the body. So when you think about someone shouting at you and making you angry, the body's fine. Nobody's trying to hurt your body. It's the self that feels wounded. So the, the self is meant to protect the body, but that in the end it's all its busy morning to night protecting itself. Um, and... Uh, uh, there are it's basically defense mechanisms that are uh, very fundamental and lead to fundamental attachments um, attachments to views attachments to me attachments to myself these the self kind of dominates the uh, our experience in the daily life the self runs the show and it's built on defensiveness the self is actually, self and the world is basically in friction with the world. The self, you can almost define it as a mechanism of friction. Me and the world 
what do I have to do to protect, to watch out for, to understand, to get things better, to cope, etc., etc. So that fundamental <clears throat> attachment to self, very deep, is the source of, of, of conflict. And that's why um, it's not at all easy. So um, I'd like to um, talk uh, about some practice and about some directions, how to work with conflict. And we can, uh, those of you who can come to Spirit Rock will go a lot more into these ways. But the first thing about um, conflict is to understand that it's a wake-up call and not a disaster. Conflict tells us, here's an opportunity to see your limits. Here is as far as you can go. This is the challenge place. Like the image, well-known image, Treasure Island, the map of Treasure Island. So there's an X on the map that says, dig here. So if you're in the middle of conflict, that's an X that says, dig here. There's your challenge. There's the test of Dharma. Use it as an opportunity, not as a a failure. Oh, the Dharma doesn't work and I'm no good and I'm just arguing with people and people argue with me and so on. No, no, it's it's the beginning. And, um, And be interested in dukkha, in the pain of being disturbable. And I, did you catch that sense? The pain of being disturbable. Meaning, anybody can come and tell you, you're an idiot. And we get up and run, we start fighting back, we react, we respond. It means we're disturbable. It means people can press our buttons. That's a place to look and to see. And that's the X on the map saying, Go there. So that's the first thing, is conflict is an opportunity. And the second thing is um, we need to watch carefully with mindfulness um, the process as it happens. So the minute someone... Ch- every, you know, a good weather friend, I mean, everything's just great and hunky-dory, Nothing challenging. Everything's great. You feel expanded. You feel at ease. The minute someone challenges you, and it can be, you know, I don't know what, your kid, uh, your grandchildren, your parents, your uncles or aunts, your boss at work and so on, the minute somebody is going to say to you, you're a failure or you're no good or uh, why you say that or how dare you say that about my favorite political leader, or whatever, and you can watch the contraction happen. The contraction happens straight away. Boom. We are back to defensive mode. And that is the place of mindfulness. We can watch that happen. We can watch the way our buttons are being pressed. We can um, turn towards our defenses and our fears and watch them very carefully. And that's powerful, changes the whole picture because conflict needs automatic pilot. Conflict needs automatic to be on automatic. 
to be reactive, automatically reactive, automatically defensive. Will will answer, shout back to the other person. They will shout us. We will shout at them. That's all defensive and, and automatic. So mindfulness here in the small moments of a m- moment of conflict really, um, really uh, stops that. It kind of cuts the chain. And we find out, we, 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 we see we are vulnerable, we see people can press our buttons, we can be kind to our vulnerability, and we see what happens, that uh, 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 the thoughts that grow with thoughts of defense, the thoughts that happen. Um, so, um, we've done a lot of work out in the Middle East with Israelis and Palestinians, over many, many, many years. And Israelis and Palestinians, we brought them together for workshops for uh, 48 hours. And we would sit together and work together um, on um, on peacemaking. And the people who were pretty afraid of each other at the beginning. And they're not B- Buddhist practitioners. But the Dharma is behind everything that we did. And so one of the places that we did work is firstly spending a day with Israelis and Palestinians. Every time it was like 15 Israelis, 15 Palestinians who went to Palestinian uh, uh, town, which is frightening for the Israelis. Um, And we spent a day on helping people feel safe so that the automatic defensiveness wouldn't dominate everything that happened. And then just uh, opening a little bit through deep listening in groups was one of the things that we did there. Deep listening to people's defensiveness, people's way of saying, of feeling I'm being attacked, what that feels like, asking people how that feels like, how, asking people to, to get to share their uh, experiences in the present moment of sitting with an Israeli or a Palestinian, how, what it does to them, what buttons are being pressed. So that was one of the elements that we did in this, the workshops. Um, not the only one, not the most powerful one, but uh, the most powerful one actually is um, is the wisdom to to go into someone else's shoes. And so that really is the it's mindfulness out of your own reactivity. It's not just looking at your defensiveness and your reactive automatic reactions and your selfing and your vulnerability, but actually using mindfulness and heartfulness to go and see what's behind the eyes of the other person. And that was really, in the workshops that we did, that was really powerful. That was the heart of the, uh, of the workshops. The workshops are called the transformation of suffering. And the reason is, in the second day, we asked people to go into dyads, into couples, and an Israeli-Palestinian. And then we just asked them to take time, slowly, slowly, give an account of their life experience. Each one giving an account, especially the pain of daily life. What is your daily life like? How is it for you? 
what's your family experiencing what's your um what's your de- what's the de- the tone of your day what's your struggle so israelis and palestinians sitting together in dyads in couples one for one hour which is a long time but it needed that time to 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 explore uh to explore that and that was where peace was made because when you've listened to the other person and you feel a human being there you will you cannot anymore and this is when i'm talking about the dharma view you cannot anymore see that person as a palestinian or israeli or black skin or white skin or republican or doesn't matter there's no labels they're gone because they're only sustained by distance and by fear and the minute you get close and you're inside another person's experience those labels go and it's no longer a palestinian he's just a person like you struggling with life with the family trying to feed the family and trying to keep the children safe and not get shot in the street and the israelis you know young guy going to university but having to go to the army and and so on and their pain there so once that that deep sharing of the in subjective world together uh is is extremely powerful and um uh shantideva in very well known quote said um to go into the shoes of another is actually sacred it's actually a sacred task it's holy because it makes such a big difference it's such an, another way of reality so an- another um level or another approach i know it's a bit of a smorgasbord of uh, of approaches I'm offering here of different kind of ways into this but I hope that you'll take from from it some keys another place that will be helpful again a dharma view or an awakened view that will transform conflict is to remember the big picture so a little bit like the quote that I gave uh, before we are made by conditions so um the conditions create uh the experience and if we understand that deeply um we will see that causes and conditions that pass and change made this situation it made this person shout at you and made you aren't want to answer back and it can be a family member as i say again or at work but conditions create maybe pressure maybe conditions create tension and boom there's uh reactivity but the condition if you look and see ah oh, there's conditions that create that are, that are creating this so there's a very nice tibetan story about two um people in a marketplace so they were wandering in the marketplace and all of a sudden one of them gets hit by a stick and he starts shouting at the stick and his friend says oh are you crazy shouting at a stick why don't you shout at the hand at least that holds the stick and he said oh oh yes sure okay so he started to shout at the hand and his friend said well don't you think it's a bit 
uh, stupid to shout at a hand. You really should shout at the person that's holding the hand, whose hand it is that's hit you. He said, "Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll shout at the uh, at the person." He started to shout at the person, and his friend said, "Well, don't you think it's a bit crazy to shout at the person? You don't know anything about him. <clears throat> Maybe he had a real hard time. Maybe he hasn't eaten for two days, and and he's just hit, he's just angry, and and it conditions." So you have to shout at the conditions that made him hit you with a stick. And his friend said, yes, of course, I'll, I could shout at the conditions. Uh, wait a minute. But that's the whole universe. Exactly. Nobody to shout at anymore. It's the whole universe. <laughs> so that's the big picture. And that will always help in situations where we are locked in conflict, which seems often so tight and closed. Uh, friction, two selves bumping into each other. But the big picture, there is another sense. Um, I have a, a story. One of the people that was always with us on our peace work, um, it was a Bedouin sheikh, Bedouin uh, tribal leader uh, called Abu Amin. And he went... One day we went to the rabbi of Akko. Akko is a city on the, um, on, the, on the seashore of North Israel. And we went to the rabbi and said, we'd like, we're doing a peace walk and we'd like to invite your Jewish students to come and join Jews and Arabs walking silently for peace. And he said, okay, we'll think, think about it. He actually didn't send his students. But then he said, uh, Abu Amin, here's two grandfathers, right? I'm a grandfather and you're a grandfather. Abu Amin, how do you make peace? And Abu Amin said, when we do peace walks through Jerusalem, in a line of Jews and Arabs quietly walking, emanating peacefulness, demonstrating peacefulness, showing that peace is possible. So if people shout at me on the way, go home Arab, what I do is I absorb the shout. It absorbs into, I absorb it into my being, it disappears there, and that way I have reduced violence in the world. That's a Buddha. Uh, Bedouin Buddha, <laughs> definitely. Um, so another element that I want to mention, as I said, it's a little bit of a list, but you know, I, I hope that you'll understand because it's not the Dharma doesn't offer one tool, and that's exactly what I was saying right at the beginning. The richness of the Dharma giving us so many possibilities of how we can uh, work with daily life. So I want to mention just two more. <laughs> Uh, directions. One is, is heartfulness. Is actually the peace walks that we did demonstrating another way of being. Meaning, if you can walk, Jews and Arabs, walk quietly, silently, young Jews, young Arab teenagers, in a line, steadily, showing peacefulness, not shouting, not arguing, not talking even, just showing peacefulness. Like, 
we may change. Something has changed. And it's, it's the heart. Um, it's emanating peace, emanating compassion, emanating uh, heartfulness to all. That's how we used to walk. We would radiate uh, metta and compassion, kindness and compassion to the dogs passing by. There was always a policeman with us, uh, to him, to the police. Uh, one day we had 400 um, Palestinians and Israelis and we walked to the separation wall quietly, steadily. And uh, it wasn't so easy, not always so easy because the Palestinians, uh, young people, can, can be pretty hot. So we, were, we really needed the elders to quieten the Palestinian youth and say, no, there's another way of doing things. And they wanted flags to wave Palestinian flags. We said, no, no, no flags. No Palestinian flags, no Israeli flags. The only flag we will allow is a white one. <laughs> and the symbol is bandage. <laughs> we can, you can wave a bandage if you want. <laughs> anyway, we walked. Uh, they agreed in the end. We walked silently to the separation wall. And outside the wall, we just sat and sang together. Sang songs and we did some circle dancing. Uh, and it was just such a different message. And it was so beautiful because even the soldiers that were very worried about us, 400 people arriving in the, uh, on the, the, the barrier, uh, what are we going to do? And as soon as they saw that we were kind of... Uh, demonstrating heartfulness and peace, they actually sort of joined in. I mean, they didn't dance with us, but they hang around and they sat down and they could have a cigarette and they were kind of really chatting to us. And they really So it, it's um, compassion. There is another place that is an antidote to conflict. It's the sense of holding sense of forgiveness, sometimes we need antidotes. The peace walks were an antidote. We're like showing there is another way, here is another way of doing things. And the final piece in all uh, that I want to mention is perhaps the most profound and deep, um, and that's equanimity. Because equanimity is a very high state in the Dharma. And it's... Um, Equanimity is the sense of not being disturbable. Undisturbability. That's a long word. There isn't even any Hebrew I can say for that, for that word. But the undisturbability. That means something in us cannot be reactive and responding defensively because we're not, it doesn't work anymore. So the self is no longer running the show as a sort of defense mechanism. And there's, it's a sense of emptiness. And here is where the emptiness, and emptiness I know is a big word, and I'm not going to go into it now, uh, but you can see, call it not as a big Buddhist word, sunyata, but more the sense of less Friction between the self and the world. Less selfing me versus the world. 
That's duality. I'm here and I have to protect myself against the world. And so, um, it's, uh, uh, it's a very high state in the sense that, um, it's a deep inner protection instead of an armor outside. And the inner, inner protection of being more empty, uh, will mean that you cannot be disturbed, you cannot be knocked over, you can, you, you, you're un, not disturbable. You still feel the world. Equanimity is not a, not a barrier, uh, indifference. It's not, it's sometimes mixed up. It's not indifference. Indifference is part of the armor. Meaning, I have inner peace as long as I'm not disturbed. I have a very peaceful meditation, uh, uh as long as no, nobody, you know, this disturbs me. I, I'm, I'm fine and peaceful with my family. But why is the neighbor's kid crying? <laughs> Disturbing me. It, it's not that. It, it's, it's really about, um, a, a deep sense of inner space which can contain the world. And that's why it's quite a developed. It's the, uh, the last of the par- ten paramis. It's the last of the seven factors of awakening. It's one of the Brahma Viharas. I won't go into uh, equanimity now. By the way, I am teaching a day, a day long uh, on equanimity um, on Saturday in uh, Santa Cruz. And uh, one or two talks I'm giving in the Bay Area is on the issue of equanimity. Um, and, uh, so, but um, uh, equanimity is, in its essence, there's enough spaciousness inside the person, which is key dharma practice. All the mindfulness goes there to being less full of self. And as we empty more and more the self, what happens is the world takes the place of self. So if the world and you are one, then who can disturb whom? And that's the subtle, huge subtle power of equanimity. You're not disturbable because you are the world. The world and you are together. And it's interesting that the Buddha once said, this wonderful quote, he said, if you're finding somebody to argue with, uh, if you someone arguing with you all the time, and um, if he's not very emotional or has strong views, you can probably answer, and it may not be easy. But if someone's got very, very strong views and very emotional, don't try and argue, but never underestimate the power of equanimity. And uh, so it's a very, it's a very powerful, in the end, ultimate, uh, way of dealing with conflict. The sense of unity between you and the world. The world and you are one thing, so nobody can disturb anybody else. There, where can disturbance happen? So I want to finish with, um, a little personal story, which, uh, is a surprise for me when it happened. In one of these workshops, um, so, these workshops are all through the 90s, mostly. We actually stopped in the middle of the beginning of the 2000s. They're still carrying on in different forms, by the way, in Israel. They're, all the time we do uh, different forms 
of of peace activity activity in the Dharma community constantly until today. Anyway, so this some years ago, one day Israelis and Palestinians sitting together, we thought everything was fine, and it exploded. It just exploded. And everyone started to shout at everybody else. And it just went bananas. Sh- uh, you killers, you uh, soldiers, you you bombers, you terrorists, you the whole room started to go like that. And I didn't know what to do. So I took my chair. I sat, put the chair in the middle of the room and sat there quietly and waited for it to be over. So the... um. After five minutes, it all settled down, <clears throat> and the Palestinian facilitator, Rauda, I turned to her and said, Rauda, I'm sorry, I blew it. <laughs> I couldn't hold it. I'm sorry. It actually never happened. It's really, really, very, very unusual. I said, I blew it. She said, no, you didn't. You don't realize. The fact that you sat there in the middle with equanimity made the whole thing uh, dissolve in five minutes. Otherwise, there would be a f- fighting the whole day. You, just with your quiet equanimity, I hadn't noticed, but she did. And uh, she said, y- you know, just you sat there with your quietness. That settled everything in five minutes. So <laughs> it was a story uh, where I myself learned something about it, about equanimity. But um, equanimity, in a sense, is a kind of the final answer to uh, to to conflict. So thank you. That's formally what I'd like to say, and I love for some responses, reactions, and dialogue. Thanks, uh, Stephen. And maybe uh, I'll I'll start with a. Uh, with a question or exploring with you. Um, so it's, uh, it's uh, I think, really um, wise to, uh, as you point out, to see how you're reacting and just to, to not be so lost in the story, but to see the causes and the conditions in, inside of, of you. Ha, um, what I want to ask is that even seeing it, sometimes you can see it, you can see the um, where it comes from, you can see the habit, and yet seeing it isn't enough because you are because your whole being has been activated, and then there's this split between seeing that you're mm. activated and mm. there's an awareness that says, "Wow, I'm really." triggered here i'm really stuck here mm. and yet there you are in the middle so mm. um what what would you suggest in that in between place um i would suggest persistence <laughs> uh, firstly uh, understanding that this is extremely powerful and therefore we're not going to be able to knock it on the head in one go so we may find ourselves reactive again and again and again, even with some degree of mindfulness, as you point out, because it's so deep in the defensive structure of the person. However, I think, uh, of course, taking a breath and a pause 
a sort of sacred pause uh, and uh, when we're faced with the conflict will always um, help that process. So just non-reacting for a moment, giving that gives more chance for the seeing. And then not to expect that the seeing will work instantly and not will work immediately. But there's no doubt, absolutely no doubt, at least in my mind, that the more that we apply seeing to conflict situations, we ourselves will begin to uh, be used to um, uh, not being on automatic pilot here. The more seeing, so we, we, it, is, it isn't easy, I agree. But if we see a piece of the chain of reactivity, someone saying, and then we respond, and then we feel our buttons are pressed, and then we feel our anger, and we, feel, and we watch the anger, and we watch the tummy, and it doesn't really matter. As long as we see something there, that's already a beginning in, it's instead of this automatic reactivity. So what we need to do is keep seeing pieces of this and trust that as we do that over time, the whole thing will be less and less automatic. But we do need time for that. In other words, we need to see do that again and again and again and see pieces of this event and we will find ourselves empowered slowly, slowly. But it will not it's because it's so primal, it will not happen in five minutes. So and and when the mind says, you know, I've been seeing this for a long time and who am I kidding? Um, you know, do is there really gonna be any change? There can be a seeing and a frustration with the seeing. Each time you can you can see for mm. decades and with that same reaction of you know, there there you go again. So any any additional piece that you can add that besides persistence, what's a what's a quality of that that transforms rather than just uh oh there there there's that habit again. Well well I think trust uh is important because we're not the the voice that says, Oh, I'm I'm in the same loop as I have been for the last ten years it's not a reliable voice. <laughs> we, we, it's another voice that, uh, that, that undoes ourselves. And we can look at that voice too as being um, a voice which is, uh, needs to be looked at. Um, a self-critical voice, a judgmental voice. That's part of the picture. So we can pick that up as well and say, oh yeah, there's that voice as well. But, um, you know, it, I, I experience it again and again. People say, oh, I've been practicing, I've been on the cushion for 10 years and I still get angry. The whole thing, it means I haven't really progressed. So I say, ask the person, 10 years ago, how angry were you? Um, well, every two days. And today, how, how, how angry? Oh, well, once a month. And how long does it last? Oh, it lasts. Yeah, and the, the, they've not known how much the change has happened because there's a critical mind saying, oh, I've not really changed. But they actually have changed. So I think trust is important to really trust that there is change, even though sometimes we don't pay attention because we're critical of ourselves. But that there is a change. We, we cannot be in the same place as pure automatic reactivity if we are seeing elements of, the, of, our, of our... We we just cannot be in that place. 
There will be a change. And even if we say, I don't think there is, I don't notice a change. And also we can ask our wives and husbands. (laughs) I mean, they probably know more than we do. They can say, yeah, of course you've changed. There's still some more to go. All right. (laughs) You've still got more. But there definitely has been change. And I think others can see it sometimes easier than we can. Um, so trust is, is, uh, is important and love of the Dharma because we see how instead of being uncontrolled in automatic reactivity, we're a little bit back in control of our life by that seeing and saying, okay, yes, I am reacting, but I do see the way that this is working and I'm not in the same place as this automatic reactivity. Yeah, Ernie. Oh, okay. Um, so you're talking about standing in someone else's shoes yes. and the ability, yes. the capacity to do that. And I'm wondering about people who are born without empathy and if it's possible for that to change. And I'm thinking about, I mean, from my opinion, someone like Trump who maybe has the Asperger's or high-level autism kind of functioning as limited in that way. Or he wouldn't throwing paper towels to people who had just had a hurricane. You know, Amy doesn't have natural empathy. Can yeah, you that change? Yeah, we are bound to have different abilities, different people who have different abilities to uh, empathize. And, um, but uh, with an intention to do that, and, and with an intention to look at the other person, even if the, na- the natural level of empathy is reduced, if you have the intention to understand another person, that makes what changes possible. We, we, we can't really measure. So someone that's going to have empathy level is way back is going to have more problem, of course. It's not going to be so easy. But that person can still be interested in another person, learn about what the other person is going through, listen to another person. The listening uh, does does a lot, and we'll we'll listen to another person, and instead of um, just being reactive, and and that doesn't need a high level of empathy. It it needs intention. Yeah, it needs the intention. Can I, can I say something? That just uh, you're not necessarily going to change the other person. They they have to have an intention to change. Although if they feel heard, their their volume will go down. <laughs> But you can have empathy for their confusion, and so it's not so much changing them, but my relationship, I'm not adding on gasoline into the conflict. It's like uh, one of my favorite names of of the Buddha, he was called uh, the teacher of those who could be taught. Not everybody got it when the Buddha gave it, a talk. Some people were saying, "Oh, not for me," or "I don't like that guy." You know, so there's no way that we can change everyone, but our relationship to them in our better moments can change, which has an effect on the dynamic as well. Yeah, Ernie had a question. Oh, sure. Go ahead. Um, I, I'm interested in having you explore a little bit further what you, one of the things you opened with about um, a land of three monotheistic religions and coming in with mindfulness. 
uh, which if it's in if it has Buddhist in front of it, it's kind of a non-theistic approach. And and just say more about the receptiveness of people who are coming presumably with some sort of a monotheistic perspective of their own and listening to, is it Buddha Dharma that you're presenting or just Dharma hmm. <laughs> with, without, without the capital D or without the B in front of it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we're, we're very, uh, um, we give full credit to the Buddha Dharma. We're not trying to kind of package Buddha Dharma into an entirely kind of sanitized, uh, non, non-faith place. But we, we reduce the, the sort of outward religious aspects. So we will not have all of this. <laughs> and, um, it actually, because of Jewish law, if we had Buddha statues, um, any religious Jews wouldn't, uh, wouldn't wouldn't be able to sit and meditate. They would be able to sit and meditate if they meditated in the in the opposite direction. They wouldn't meditate to a statue, but they could meditate if the Buddha statue was in the room. That's not the problem. It's the so um, we so we don't have any Buddha statues anyway. Um, but we certainly uh, acknowledge this as a Buddhist path or as a Buddhist inspiration, Buddha Dharma. Uh, non-religious, but Buddha Dharma. And the Buddha wasn't a Buddhist. So we, we're in good hands there. Um, we get quite a few Orthodox Jews coming to our retreats and uh, we give them the possibilities, their ritual possibilities, so that they, they don't feel uh, they can't keep the Jewish laws while on retreat. But we, we don't give them any special and actually, it's really interesting that some of the Orthodox Jews, many of the Orthodox Jews um, coming to our retreats uh, say to us, we want the authentic Dharma. We don't want you to package a kind of Jubu, Jewish Buddhist uh, salad. We want the real thing. So we, can, we come to you to learn Buddha Dharma. Then in our own ha- house, we'll go home and we'll see how to, how to absorb it. Um, we get very few Arabs uh, in retreats, and um, I uh, and here and there we have an Arab or a Druze uh, or uh, Arab Christian coming, but not so many. And there is a cultural issue there. Uh, quite a lot of the language, I think, of the Dharma is quite Western, and it's not religious issue. It's much more an issue of of of, co- of concepts of how to teach. For example, I once had a group of um, 70 uh, open university Palestinian students that asked me to teach them a meditation class in a Palestinian city. And uh, I was more or less giving the guidance that you gave earlier on, and they were just looking at me as if I was talking, you know, gobbledygook. I couldn't understand a word. It was in translated to Arabic, but... They, they, and so I, I said to them, well... What is your image of silence? And they said, oh, of course we have images in the Arab culture. Our image of silence is the palm tree, is the desert, is the Arabic courtyard with a tree growing in the middle. We use images like that and their invitation. So as soon as I started to use their images, they got it. They were really deep inside it and they, and they got it very quickly. 
So I think that we, we have quite a Western cultural language in the Dharma. We should be aware of that. And, and it, it is very limited going out into the Arab world. And I think partly this is a language. We, we didn't really find that language. Uh, but anyway, so we, it's real Buddha Dharma. We don't uh, sanitize it. You know, uh, but we, we try and leave the religious objects out. Uh, yeah, Stephen, I'm a little curious about how your peacemaking involves gets involved with direct action. Just a story I'm making up. Maybe you're walking down the street and you see a bunch of Palestinians beating up an Israeli or a bunch of Israelis beating up a Palestinian. How do you take direct action when there's suffering going on like that? I mean, peace walks are all very good. And dancing in front of the separation wall is you know, wonderful practice. Yeah. But when it comes really down to actually doing something when suffering is happening, how do you integrate that with your teachings? Well, we, we make sure, we do a lot of direct action. There's always groups of Dharma, stu- Dharma practitioners that are going out to the Palestinian areas to help the Palestinians uh, harvest their olives so that they don't get attacked by uh, settlers while harvesting olives. There's uh, a lot we can do by presence. But if we sense violence in one way or another, we will not go there. We, 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 we're not going to kind of um, encourage violence in any way, but we'll certainly encourage direct action. So, uh, and we, we do. Um, and, uh, and what helps then is the processing inside. So that there's a lot of sometimes stress and difficulty that people experience and pain indirect action facing situations like this the presence helps but it not it needs processing so then there's quite a lot of work inside the dharma community in dialogue in 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 discussion in sharing and so on to kind of process what happened and how to work with these situations i don't think we've really been in there is something in the emanation of the, 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 the kindness that we radiate. We've really not been stuck in serious violence, but we've been right in the heart of places where the violence can happen, but it, it just simply never happened. Um, maybe we can find, we find a way of putting, uh, quenching the fire as, uh, 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 as Arnold was saying, as, as, as the model, by just our presence making, um, undoing the potential for violence. Um, but sometimes tense situations and sometimes fear and sometimes there are settlers there that, were, you know, uh, that, 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 that are threatening and army sometimes threatens. So there's fear, yes, we've all experienced fear uh, quite a few times. And then we go together and process it. Well, it's just uh, it's just about time to to go. Okay, great. Um, so I want to say thank you very much, and uh, it's it's been lovely here and 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 very sweet evening. Uh, you're welcome to uh, uh, purchase a copy of the book if you like. It's uh, there's a box there, and also take a leaflet um, to give to others about the book, and also buy my online courses on uh, on deep dharma. Uh, their, their courses, which are quite, which are quite on profound dharma. 
So you're welcome to take a leaflet about that as well. And thank you all. Thank you, Stephen. So we'll close with just a, a short loving kindness. Just for, first reflecting on how fortunate we all are to share an evening together where there's clearly not conflict, just talking about conflict, and where this is a, a room with peace and goodwill, and how fortunate we are to share that. And then just reflecting on how we wish that for all. So many going through conflict right now, humans and living creatures going through challenges and suffering, and then there are those that are bringing more happiness and well-being into the world. And holding all with the same spirit of goodwill. May all know inner peace and outer peace. May all connect with the goodness inside of them and share their love well. May all be free of confusion, suffering, conflict. And may our coming here together ripple out and be of benefit to all beings everywhere. May all beings know the highest happiness and peace. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.